You are listening to WPRK 91.5, the voice of Rollins College, Winter Park, Florida. Welcome to the Crummer Hour on WPRK 91.5 Rollins College. I'm your host, Clara Mount. Today's show is brought to you by the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College and Victor Media Group. You can check out Victor Media Group and its growing library of shows and podcasts at victormediagroup.co. Today, our guest is Dr. Keenan Yoho, who currently serves as Professor of Operations Management at the Crummer Graduate School of Business. And I'm here with our panel of Crummer students and alumni, which includes Gerard Mitchell, MBA 2018, Kyle Sawyer, current student in EA MBA 37, and I'm, as always, Clara Mount, MBA 20. Welcome, everyone. Hey, Clara. Thanks for having me. Hey, Clara. In a moment, we're going to listen to the Crummer Connections interview with Dr. Yoho that was broadcast this past May. But before we do that, I want to ask the panel to share some of their thoughts on what the audience should listen for in this interview. Uh, so Kyle, let's get started. What did what should the listeners check out? If you open up a dictionary and you look up the term self-made man, Dr. Yoho's name should be listed right in its definition. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, no, his, his drive and work ethic, I think, are very prevalent in his stories. And I, I hope listeners pick up uh, several lessons from the interview. Definitely. Uh, Gerard. I'm going to echo the same sentiment, the quote, you're not going to outwork me. Uh, Dr. Yoho talks about personal determination rooted in growing up in the Midwest. Yes. And and I do have to say for myself, I'm from the Midwest. So for me, it was kind of nostalgic uh, and interesting to hear from someone who clearly has so much affection for the Midwest, um, but has also chosen to move and make a life elsewhere. So um, I just thought that was incredibly relatable. Uh, so, so in the second half of the show, we're going to have Dr. Yoho here with our panel um, to hear more about his upbringing in the Midwest, his thoughts on the future of operations management, his advice for the Crummer community. So please stay tuned for that. But first, as I said, we're going to check out that Crummer Connections interview. So the next thing you hear is going to be host J.B. Adams welcoming our guest. Let's get started. Today's guest is Dr. Keenan Yoho, Professor of Operations Management at the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. He has a PhD in operations from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his specialties include operations and supply chain management. Earlier in his career, he worked at the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, California, and as a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Dr. Yoho, welcome to the show. Thank you, JB. Thanks for having me. Now, Dr. Yoho, uh, our audience is business leaders. Everybody knows that. And your expertise is in operations management. So I have two prompts for you. Operations management, what is it and why is it important, particularly right now? I would say that quite simply, it's the business of how uh, and when things get done. Um, so from a strategic standpoint, it's the way that you execute. So a strategy without uh, an execution approach or an operational strategy um, typically does not uh, go well. So um, that's really what operations is about. It's about how do you get things done? Um, and it involves everything from uh, planning, through uh, execution. So not just how you do things, but where you do things, who does things, when. But I'd say the timing um, is, is a big part of that. And so um, operations is really concerned about the timing because the timing of events 
is uh, as important as what we do. Daniel Pink uh, wrote a book about this several years ago, um, focused on the question of when, and that we focus so much of our time thinking about what, but rarely thinking about when. Yeah, so uh, I wanna share something with you and just get your reaction to it. Um, if I were to ask you the provocative question, who cares? I mean, who is attracted to operations management? Is there a specific type of person that is suited for operations management? And is there a particular type that is not? Um, I'd say that as I often tell people, look, if you, if you want your world to be about good news, rainbows and butterflies, go into marketing, okay? <laughs> you're just not, you're not gonna be cut out for operations because we just have to think about um, the, the, the bad things, right? We're playing, one of the things about operations is thinking about risk and uh, contingencies. So as Dwight D. Uh, Eisenhower once said famously, planning is everything, plans are nothing. Yeah. It's thinking through all the contingencies um, that's the value of planning, because as uh, another uh, Moltke, the elder, uh, prior to Eisenhower once said, is no uh, plan survives first contact with the enemy, mm -hmm. meaning you can plan, but then you hit reality and you have to adapt. And so the planning helps you adapt quickly. So why, who cares? I'll answer that question. And I've kind of led you in the direction of who's cut out for this. You have to be able to think through uh, the bad times or the bad news, or as the early days in the Rand Corporation, they were focused on the questions of thinking about the unthinkable, which was mm -hmm. thermonuclear war. Yeah, what could go wrong? Right, and if there was a thermonuclear war, then then what? Right. So mm -hmm. that that those were the questions. And so if you didn't like thinking about that, if you didn't like thinking about these types of apocalyptic or cataclysmic events, that's not this won't um, be the right area for you. If, however, you really do like thinking through not just how, not just about contingencies, but how things get done, uh, who does them, when they do them, when, where they do them. If you like thinking about execution, if you like taking an idea and giving life to that idea, breathing uh, energy into that idea so that you can actually fulfill or realize the goal, then operations is for you. Um, and if you like problem solving, operations is for you. Well, uh, some may disagree with me, but when I hear about the, the kinds of things you're describing, they sound like uh, great opportunities. And, uh, you know, just given the knowledge that you have in operations to the rest of us, you sound like a fortune teller. All right. In our next topic, we're going to talk about your backstory, and that gives us a chance to get to know you and understand your early business influences. In your intro, I mentioned that you worked at the Rand Corporation, which is in Santa Monica, and then you taught at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is in Monterey, and everyone would listen to that and think that you're from California, but you are not. So tell us where you're from. I'm not. I grew up in the Midwest. So um, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, which is uh, a college town where Indiana University is. Um, but it was also a one-time factory town. Um, and uh, it's also um, has a lot of a, a pretty large, large rural population around it. Um, and so that's, you know, where I grew up and went to high school. There were uh, two public high schools in town when I was uh, growing up, and I went to one of those public high schools in Bloomington. And I just want to ask you, because I can relate in many respects, uh, do you think that there is uh, a meaning to 
Midwestern. Do you speak Midwestern? What does that mean to you? Wow, that's a really, you know, freighted, freighted one. Yes, it's intentionally freighted. Um, You know, there are a lot of stereotypes around Midwesterners. Um, I would say that one uh, kind of defining part of it for me was um, family. People tend to stay there. Right. So there's multiple generations, um, you know, in the same place. And many people, members of their families have have only left for war Uh Um, and then they come back typically. So in the context of Bloomington, Indiana and uh, your your generation, I'm assuming Generation X, Mm -hmm. um, what would you say influenced your early perceptions of business? What were some role models for you? You know, I I really didn't think about business that much when I was a young person growing up. I was very, very interested in music. Um, and I would say that music had the, was one of the biggest transformational uh, parts of my life and led me in um, some very different directions. And it was because my parents bought me a snare drum when I was in fifth grade and uh, got me uh, a drum teacher. And I happened to have a fantastic drum teacher. Yeah. Tell us who it was. Who um, is, was, he's uh, Kenny Aronoff. So he's probably one of the, you know, the most famous and, you know, biggest uh, studio drummers out there. Um, but Kenny was a, a student at Indiana University in the music school at the time. Um, he had a, was in a small apartment uh, there in Bloomington and I would go over and he would, um, you know, introduce me to very fundamental, you know, rudiments in drumming. Very, very, and if you listen to him talk these days, you'll see he's very, very focused on the, the rudiments of, of drumming. And then at the end, he would always uh, throw on a record, an LP, and uh, set me at the drum set and I just got to drum. And so that was really, really an inspiring time. He was full of all the energy that you see today um, in him, uh, very uplifting and inspiring. And that set me off on my path for music, which then led me to an entire cohort of people that I probably would have never met without music. So music opened doors for you. For uh, for the sake of people who may not know Kenny Aronoff, what acts has he been associated with? Well, his first act, the reason why he could no longer be my drum teacher was he went off to work for an act, uh, Johnny Cougar, then John Cougar, then John Cougar Mellencamp. So that was um, the band that he was with, I guess, the the longest um, after he left Bloomington. And now, of course, he plays in the studio with people from all different genres of music uh, everywhere. And what did you learn by watching Kenny? What did he teach you? He was really passionate um, about what he did. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and um, the kind of, you know, the path that he wanted to be on. And he'll, he'll tell you in his own stories about he had considered classical music. He became a rock musician. Um, but he knew what he wanted to do and he also took risk to do it. You know, he flew out to New York for the, for the I believe it was New York for the audition. Um, and he's and he's written um, you know a, a book about this experience. So I'll leave it to everyone to, to check out his book, um, "Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll." Um, and so you can read more about his his story. But um, he was just very very focused. He was also um, 
I guess that was just it. He was just really, really encouraging. I knew I wasn't his best student, but he always made you feel like you were his best student when you were there. And so that's that's kind of a charisma that we see around a lot of people, you know, that that um, become that are good leaders, frankly, because they are able to make uh, everyone that's interacting with them feel like they're the only person in the room at that time. And so Kenny had that quality and it was sincere. Is this something that you try to emulate? What's the takeaway for you? What have you applied? Well, I, was, I would just say the next thing was, you know, where I went is I ended up, you know, being able to play in the, you know, the band and, and the, the, you know, the kinds of the concert type of uh, band in my school because I had a, a fantastic, another a fantastic um, music teacher and the head of the, the bands that, you know, let me in after not a very impressive audition at all, um, but just knew that I was going to work hard. And again, that kind of work ethic I picked up from not just, you know, uh, my drum teacher, but a lot of people in my family who, you know, just I, if you want to come back to our question about what's Midwestern, it's it's just you grind it out, right? You 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 enter the room humble, usually knowing or at least believing you're not the the smartest, fastest, strongest person in the room. But what you're not going to allow to happen is you won't allow anyone to outwork you. And so I think that that was something that I've just always kind of carried forward, knowing that look, I'm not. I wasn't blessed with the kind of, you know, talent that some people have. But when you look at really talented people, if you pull back the curtain, you're going to see they work a lot. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, the biggest thing that I took away. I, I, I apologize. I kind of lost the thread on your on your question. So I hope I answered it. No apology necessary. And actually, uh, if I may say the apology, how Midwestern of you. That um, is almost Canadian. <laughs> almost Canadian. Um, but I'm saying that as a fellow Midwesterner and uh, and I can completely relate to mm -hmm. just the, the uh, idea that you put in the hours, you put in the time. Um, our guest is Dr. Keenan Yoho, and we'll be back in a moment to learn more about his professional journey. Please stay with us. Hi, I'm Mallory Bliss, an Early Advantage MBA student at Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. When I was searching for my next opportunity after graduation, an MBA at Crummer was the best opportunity for me. I was nervous about starting at Crummer with my science background, but my fears were calmed on the very first day. Crummer is helping me pursue my aspiration of working in the pharmaceutical industry. For more information on the Crummer Early Advantage MBA program, visit crummer.rollins.edu. Welcome back to Crummer Connections. I'm JB Adams. Our guest is Dr. Keenan Yoho, Professor of Operations Management. So we want to learn more about your career journey. You said you grew up in a college town and had an interest in music, but you uh, you did not go to college right away after high school. Is that right? I went into uh, the National Guard, mm -hmm. uh, the Army National Guard. So went off to basic training. Was in a in a National Guard unit in Indiana, and then I eventually went to Temple University, and I moved to Philadelphia, and uh, Wait was a in a, I have a question. So, mm -hmm. um, your time in the National Guard did that help pay for school? Yes, it did okay. somewhat. Yes, it did. So there was a GI Bill. It was fairly modest at the time. I don't know. It was around two hundred dollars a month. 
Okay, uh, I had a good friend, uh, Philip, who graduated high school with me, who also got the GI Bill. And what was remarkable to me was that he was starting college at about the same time that I was finishing college. So is that true for you too? Yes, I was a, I think I was a 23 year old freshman. Yeah. So yes, so I was a little older than some of my peers um, there at the school. And if I, if I may venture, probably a little more mature. I don't know if I would venture out that far on that branch. It gets thin uh, very soon. So um, yeah, I just, I maybe had some different experiences. Maybe I'll say that. Okay, well, tell us about one of those. Um, well, I think that, um, I mean, that, that, so, I mean, Temple University opened up so many doors to me, but I, I can start with one of the first doors that I chose to go through when I arrived there for orientation. And so I arrived at Temple. Um, I wasn't that good of a student, really, uh, as a high schooler. And so um, I arrived there, you know, on regular track at Temple and um uh, actually, I was on I was admitted on probation, so I had to kind of prove myself when I came there. So uh, they were basically going to give me, I think, a one semester or something. And if I did OK, then I could stay. So I went to orientation and they released us at orientation to go to lunch. And as I was um, headed to lunch, I walked by this door that said honors orientation. And so they looked like they were just getting ready to start. And I was curious, you know, who's in here. And so I walked in and I sat down and I sat instead of eating lunch, I sat through honors orientation. And at the end of that orientation, I went up to um, the, the, the person running the, the orientation and said, I'm really interested in the honors program. And I happened to be carrying a physical copy of my transcripts and uh, I don't remember if I had a resume in there or not, but she said, okay, well, why don't you come back, uh, you know, and see me at 4.15 after everything's over during the day, all the campus tours and everything. And so I did, and I went to her office and, you know, she had my packet sitting there in my folder and she said, well, you know, you really don't fit the profile of the honors program. And I said, yeah, I know, I know I don't. Um, but I would really appreciate it if you take a chance on me for the following reasons, you know, and I, I told them, told her a little bit about how I'd taken time between high school and coming to Temple University and some of the things I had done and that I was very, very dedicated. And she, not unlike uh, my, um, you know, band instructor back at uh, my high school, she took a chance on me and she admitted me and you know, I, I got a 4.0 that term. Um, I think that my faculty members liked me. I was engaged and I really loved my peer group there. So what, what possesses you to walk through the door and say, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to sit in this honors orientation and I'm going to ask to participate in it. She could have kicked you out. What possessed me to do that? I think that, you know, she did a fantastic job of selling the program. I knew I was going to be in smaller classes. I was going to be with highly motivated students. And I was highly motivated um, because I had just sold everything that I owned to move out to Philadelphia and live in a small apartment on a sleeping bag uh with a milk crate and a piece of plywood that i found in an alley that i used to fashion a desk out of so i was kind of all in you know and and i had i think one month's rent 
uh, in addition to my month that I'd paid and my deposit in my pocket. And that was it. So I knew already that I'd pushed all my chips into the center and I wanted the best possible education and experience that I could get. So I wanted, you know, the, the best faculty and I wanted the best peer group. And what I mean by that is just people who are switched on and are going to work. And, and when you're around people like that, they push you. Um, and because they're pushing you, um, the additional hard work that you're doing doesn't seem quite as hard, <laughs> if that makes sense. And, and to, to use another, I mean, to use another reference, um, would you say that this is a burn the ships mentality? Did you have other options or? No, no. Other than go back, you know, with your tail between your legs to the Midwest, which, you know, that's a very un-Midwestern thing to do. <laughs> oh, my. You and I could talk for hours because uh, I've got a parallel story for everyone that you share. Um, but in this same vein, being bold, uh, you you have another one. And I, and I want our listeners to hear what I consider the parallel to this story. So that opportunity to be in the honors program <clears throat> was another real transformative um, part because I got a just a fantastic education. Um, with, again, really inspired faculty members, really inspired students, you know, I realize, look, I'm going to have to find another gear here if I'm going to um, perform at the level these folks want me to perform. So that was fantastic. At the same time, I was in the National Guard and I was on a drill weekend. And um, at that drill weekend in the evening, there was a colonel, I believe, having a birthday party. And it was... Um, uh, I won't say exactly where it is to protect the innocent, but it was uh, they allowed our unit to go to this uh, birthday party and we could go and, you know, raise a toast to the, the person um, having the birthday. And then we were to leave. OK, because, you know, I, again, I was a junior enlisted person at the time and we were asked to leave after one drink. So we did that. And I, I really liked what I saw there. It was a really interesting place or some interesting people. And so as everyone was going out the door, I thought the only way I'm going to be able to stay here is if I get a job and no one's go the only person that's going to get, you know, get me a job is myself. So um, I jumped behind the bar and um, I started making helping out and making drinks and um and making drinks for folks. And as the night goes on, there's just a, a few people sitting around the bar and they were about, you know, what would be my, my parents' age at the time. And they're asking me, um, you know, what am I doing? Which unit am I in? Where did I come from? And so I kind of told them my story about coming from Indiana and moving out there and I'm at Temple and I'm in the honors program. And, and, uh, and, and at the end of the night, one of the gentlemen slipped, you know, slides his card across the bar and he says, come and see me here at eight o'clock on Monday. So, okay. Um, I get up, you know, I get, dressed nicely as you know my nicest clothes that i had at the time and i went down to this address and it was, a, it he, was didn't, he didn't tell you what what for he just said meet me no he just said meet me i mean i knew his name and everything and i had this address and so i just i just showed up i had no idea what i was going to be walking into and um and so i showed up and it's the u.s customs house and so um uh, on second street, uh, there in Philadelphia. And so I go in the guards there, I say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to see, uh, this gentleman. 
He checks his clipboard. My name's on the list. He said, okay, um, hold on a second. He called up and then this gentleman came down and got me and took me upstairs and proceeded to introduce me to everyone that worked there um, in the Office of Enforcement at U.S. Customs. Um, all the different types of work that they were doing. Um, and I met you know, all the, the special agents um, and uh, everyone who was working administratively to keep that um, that office humming and, you know, allow the, the customs to do their work. So at the end of this, I don't know, I was there more than an hour, a couple of hours, it seemed. And uh, at the end, he brought me over and sat me down at a desk across from his. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, well, this is amazing. You know, this is a really incredible um, place and the work that you're doing is really, really exciting. And I have to also just say, I was, a, I was an intelligence analyst uh, in, the, in the National Guard. And so um, he said, um, great. So, um, you know, do you want the job? And it was only at that moment that I realized that I had been interviewing um, for at least the past one and a half to two hours. And I was probably interviewing back at that yeah, bar too. That bar. And I didn't know, I didn't know it. Um, and I'd passed the first interview essentially at the bar. Um, and this was the second or third interview. <laughs> and so um, I said, yes, of course. I said, uh, when do I start? He said, right now. And I said, okay, wh where do I sit? And he said, right there. And so, you know, that was an apprenticeship for me um, for over three years. So needless to say, I put in my notice at the record store. And so that was, again, an incredible transformative experience, met all kinds of new people, um, did really, really exciting, um, relevant, <laughs> timely, uh, global work. Um, and so that was that was the next opportunity where, again, someone took a bit of a chance on me um, and I just tried to make sure that uh, I did not in any way um, make them regret it. Well, I have more questions for you, but the first one is this. What's your takeaway from this experience that other people could apply? If someone takes a chance on you, don't let them regret it. And that goes back to never be let anyone outwork you. And if it's not something that you decide that you want to do, be very transparent with that person, be very thankful and, and exit gracefully, um, you know, with notice and with a clean handoff. Well, I want to point something else out too. When you were at that birthday party and made the conscious decision to stay and slip behind the bar you weren't just doing that for fun. There was an agenda there. And so what do you think is the message of that? Like, I'm just doing this on a lark? No, you had something in mind. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw that they were really, really, um, that, there were some, that there were some different people there that I had never seen or met before. You know, as a good friend of mine um, that I met uh, just, gosh, it's been a decade now um, at uh, U.S. Special Operations Command uh, said every day is selection. And so that you are always interviewing. And so just never forget that <laughs> every day is selection and you are always interviewing. Yeah, uh, I would remind everyone of that. that you don't get a chance to uh, take a break. 
or uh, you know slough off because every day that you're in interacting with other people you are making an impression on them that either makes them want to work with you more or work with you less yeah uh my here's my follow-up is it in your nature to be bold and is there ever a downside is there ever a time when being bold didn't work or had a negative effect you know um let me address that last one first um probably yes but none that i remember <laughs> that's part of your nature too and that's i think partly because i think that regret tends to follow what we didn't do mm. and so i don't you know I, I mean are there things that i've done that i regret of course you know of course there are um but i think some of the big regrets um through that that follow you that haunt you and hunt you throughout the rest of your days are those things that you didn't do that you decided not to go through that door because you were embarrassed or you were afraid or you thought you weren't worthy. Um, those are the things that I think will will haunt you. And so, again, this Midwestern aspect, I mean, you know, we weren't raised to think that, again, that we're the smartest, fastest, strongest person in the room. Right. There's that certain kind of, you know, humility and self-deprecation and 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 really just you know, hey, we're not we're not the big shots, right? The big shots are in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah. You're, you live in Indiana. That's not where the big shots are. So um, but I think that um, I mean, just just kind of uh, uh, coming back to this and redirect me if, I, if I'm veering off because I got at that last one first, which was about the, the things that I didn't do. But the boldness is in my in my nature. Not really. I, don't, I mean, I don't think so. I wouldn't think of myself as a bold person. But I think that I've done, I've made some decisions that are bold, you know, I, um, well, I think I can, I think I can put it together I'm putting together what you just said with what you said earlier about operations management, strategically bold. In other words, from an operations point of view, you have weighed the options, looked at all the potential paths and made a decision like this path is going to work for me. You, you've got a calculation in mind that this is going to work. Is that fair to say? Did I did I hit the nail on the head? Yeah, I think that I mean, I, I, I will accept that. And I think that there was another part that there was, um, I don't know if I'd call it an intuition, but there was, uh, there was there was something about that path that I valued as well. There was a mission there that attracted me. Um, and for me, um, the 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 mission has to be right in order for me to do my best work so um and that, i think that's you know part of the reason why I'm, I'm in in higher ed is because you know i believe in the mission of of education excellent um dr yoho we are about to wrap up our time together um what message would you like to give to the crummer community today ah there's so many messages i guess i i could give stay uh curious and and keep learning because that's what's going to make not only it'll make your life um richer but it's also going to make you more interesting to other people and again that goes back to point one about just you know to keep moving um among those who push you and inspire you absolutely uh great advice not just for Midwesterners, but for all of us. Uh, Dr. Keenan Yoho, thank you for joining us on Crummer Connections and sharing your story. Thank you, JB. I appreciate it. 
This is Clara Mount. Please stay tuned for the second half of the Crummer Hour. When we come back, we'll meet with Dr. Keenan Yoho to get his responses to questions submitted by you, our listeners, and Crummer students and alumni. You are listening to WPRK 91.5, the voice of Rollins College, Winter Park, Florida. Hi, I'm Sarah Neely. I am an Early Advantage MBA student here at the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. Crummer has enabled me with hands-on real-world experience that has been translated inside and outside the classroom. I'm very excited for not only the rest of my second year here at Crummer, but also in the future and to come back and visit. For more information on the Crummer Early Advantage MBA program, visit crummer.rollins.edu. So in today's Crummer Hour, we were talking with Dr. Keenan Yoho. He is a professor of operations management at the Crummer Graduate School of Business. In the first half of the show, we heard Dr. Yoho describe his early lessons gained through music, experiences with the National Guard, and how to be strategically bold in your career choices. So now in the second half of the show, we have him here with us live in the VMG Zoom studio to have him respond to the questions that were provided by Crummer students, faculty, and alumni. Dr. Yoho, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to have you on here and finally get to talk to you um, live. So also with us, we have our panel of Crummer alumni and students, which includes Gerard Mitchell, MBA 2018. Great to be here, Clara. Kyle Sawyer, current student in EA MBA 37. Always a pleasure. And as always, I'm Clara Mount, your host, MBA 2020. Uh, so just jumping right on in here, because I know we've got a lot to talk about. Our, our first question is about your backstory. And I, I dibsed it because the Midwest thing. So <laughs> one of the things that you talk about with the Midwest is that it's a place where people just love to stay. Um, you know, families stay for generation after generation. And those ties are really important. So I'm really curious as someone myself who grew up in Indiana, what inspired you to move out of the Midwest? Well, it was not uh, it was not easy um, for the the reasons I, I may have uh, stated in our uh, earlier hour together, but uh, because all of my friends and my family were there, so it's yeah. that's always a very very difficult thing to to move away from. But um, the town that I grew up in, like so many towns uh, in, in the Midwest and and you know the, in the Northeast was uh, deindustrialized. So there were five factories there uh, when I was growing up, RCA, General Electric, Westinghouse, Otis Elevator, um, ABB was there uh, later. And by the time I was a sophomore, they were almost all gone. So um, wow. those jobs disappeared. That meant a lot of families were <clears throat> unemployed or underemployed. And so, um, and and farming, uh, you know, just as it has continued in the Midwest to consolidate into larger and fewer uh, owners, um, yeah. that wasn't really uh, something. So my parents were the first generation to really come off of the farm and into the factories. And then even before they were retired, the factories were moving out. So, <clears throat> you know, the choices 
for someone who grew up whose parents worked in, in factories or was a school secretary um, were pretty limited. You had a large university or college there, which is great if you had a PhD and you were um, talented enough to get a job as a as a faculty member. But the the administrator or the the kind of the the administrative jobs that were there were very few, and they were they were frankly minimum wage jobs. Um, yeah. So. Um, you know, just as someone who's looking for opportunity, it was pretty scarce. And so, um, you know, I just, I, I fortunately through the army and the, the national guard, I was able to, um, you know, get a little bit of a GI bill. It also gave me perspective. <clears throat> I went away and, um, and had some time to really think about what I wanted to do and applied to college and moved out. So, uh, Temple university gave me a shot and, uh, fell in love with Philadelphia and um, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. What do you feel like you learned um, from leaving your hometown? I know you just said that you got some perspective. You know, I think that when you leave that kind of embeddedness and that network that you that you grew up with, you have to start over, you have to create a, a new one. And, and whenever you leave that, you're really not sure if you're going to make friends again, or the kind of friends that you had, or if you're ever going to have those kinds of close connections with people. Yeah. And when you discover that you do, and you meet new people, and you have connections that are, you know, as, as strong, or perhaps, you know, stronger than the ones from where you came. Um, I think that gives you a kind of a, a hope and inspiration and a confidence that you can continue to do this. That is, you can continue to uh, go off into outer space, um, <laughs> you know, just whatever that whatever that is, that that great beyond that over the horizon, that unknown place. Yeah, absolutely. I um, for myself, I moved down to Florida was my first big move out of the Midwest and I knew almost nobody and I feel like I made such good connections because of my choice to go to Cromer when I did and all kinds of things that um, I don't think I would have been brave enough to do if I hadn't taken the jump to leave home mm -hmm. <laughs> in the first place. So that's amazing. Thank you for that. All right. Our next set of questions is about operations. And the first one comes from Kyle. That last answer was really a great segue into this question, I think. Uh, I'll be concentrating in operations beginning next semester. Um, what is what is the most valued skill for an operations professional uh, to have over the next five years, do you think? That's a great question. Um, and I'm always there's always a tendency to really focus on the technology, which is an enabler. Um, but then also kind of the, the attitude um, that you, you would have. I think the first thing is to think in terms of systems. I mean, this idea of systems analysis kind of came to be um, during World War II and after, and that is that things are connected and interrelated. I think that's one of the things that appealed to me in operations, having studied uh, religion as an undergraduate and concentrating on Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. And people say, well, how did you make that leap from Chinese and Japanese Buddhism into operations? And I said, well, there's, they both share systems thinking. That is that uh, you cannot touch or even look at something um, without changing it or being changed. And so this kind of interconnectedness <clears throat> of things, I think you have to just first accept um, that whatever you're looking at is uh, the result of lots of things that you probably cannot understand or see at the moment. And so um, 
you have to be uh, curious and, and careful and cautious with your conclusions, but also very deliberate, uh, steadfast and intentional. Um, and so those things are uh, true of meditation and they're also true of operations. So I would say that, you know, if you think um, that way and if you can get yourself in that kind of an attitude, then then, of course, things like, um, you know, data visualization and learning SQL, uh, you know, transact SQL and all those other things are going to help you. But you can have all of those skills as a computer scientist and not be not be a good operational thinker or an operations manager. Um, and so I think that, that having that attitude first, thinking about things in terms of systems, thinking about things in terms of flows, thinking about things in terms of processes, and then also about what kind of world do you want to create? Because as I've often said, the world is a competitive grinding place because we've made it that way. And so as we continue to make things cheaper, better, faster, especially the faster part, that faster we love, but that faster also grinds us into dust. And so thinking about what do I want to make fast? What do I want to make slow is also important because as someone who's going into operations, you are changing the world. You are creating something. And so thinking about that again, from a systems perspective, what is going to be the consequence of what I do here? Yes, I'm going to build a highway and it's going to make things go faster and I'm going to get to move commerce, but I just plowed it right through the middle of a neighborhood. I just, you know, I just obliterated, you know, all these, uh, you know, social networks and, and relations. And so what's the consequence of that? Not just this year, but 20 and 30 years from now. Yeah, that's I'll a super there. takeaway. <laughs> no, that that's fantastic. No, I love the 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 Buddhist connection to all that as well. That's really fascinating. Yeah, you're making me wish I'd concentrated in operations. <laughs> um, our next question is coming from Gerard. I, I'm all about operations. I, I believe operations is everything. Uh, my question is, what's the most common mistake startups make in regards to operations? That's uh, that's a great question, um, Gerard. I, I mean, I think maybe I'll even start with um, the thing that I always caution um, startups about, and that is, you know, when I teach operations management, I focus a lot on efficiency. I focus a lot on um, standing up deliberate processes and measuring. But when you're starting up, you really have to go fast. Um, and you're creating processes. And in fact, you're probably, you know, it, it, creating them all the time. So it seems as though you don't have one because it's a lot of just ad hoc action. And so as a startup, you have to go big and fast, you know, and burn bright and hot um, uh, all out for a prolonged period of time, you know, for you to just to get back to the space analogy to, to escape um, gravity and the atmosphere. And so um, I tell people don't focus on efficiency um, as a startup. You need to focus on uh, your burn rate and, and escaping gravity in the atmosphere. So you have to go hard and fast and burn bright. 
Um, so I, I, I tell them, you know, it's, while it's important to focus on the operations, the most important thing to do is just get it go as fast as possible um, and, and make the most of whatever the resources are available to you, whether it's, you know, it's money, it's people's energy and enthusiasm because those don't last forever, um, you know, in a startup because startups age you in dog years. Um, and so, you know, you do one to three years in a startup and you look in the mirror afterward and it's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think that's the most important thing. So I would just say, don't focus so much on efficiency, um, only insofar as you have to think about how are you using your resources and really to, to, to consolidate those resources into going really hard in the direction that you need to, um, you know, to get traction and maintain, to establish and maintain that momentum. I think that probably then, you know, the, the other thing, if you manage to survive that and you manage to survive your first year or two, I think then it is um, about bringing in your next set of people. Your first set of people in the startups, you know, are probably going to be, um, you know, it's a, a really eclectic motley crew of, of folks. You know, you need a lot of diversity um, when you start out. You need a lot of enthusiasm and you're going to form a really interesting core team. And then at some point you're going to get so big that everyone's been working at 120, 150 percent for, you know, two or three years. And you need to bring in that next crew and that next crew that you bring in. The real important part is getting them to understand what it is you're doing. Because what they're looking at right now is at that point at two years out is very different than what, you know, the, the, the thing, that spark that started it all. And so how do you imbue those people with the sparks um, so that they, you know, can, can you want them to be creative, too, because you need to help them to take you to that next level. But how do you imbue them with that spark and that enthusiasm to go and that and that and the next thing that they do when they start to go now um, you're, you're probably starting to, to focus on very deliberate things. Like now we need a marketing strategy. So now we need to think about marketing. Um, now we need to focus on if you're making a thing, you know, logistics and distribution, you know, how vertically integrated are we going to be? Are we going to be using, you know, third party logistics provider? How are we actually going to do the stuff? Because we can no longer just bundle up the books and go down to the post office like Jeff was doing in the mid nineties. Right. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so those so those types of the now is the time that you need to be thinking deliberately about functions about how those functions <clears throat> interact how as you're putting those things together you're differentiated are you doing something that only you can do or can somebody else do it cheaper better faster uh, at least for now um and so that's when i would say that what when most people think of operations management this is the phase that we're getting to thinking about the the quote you know operations part but that first part of the startup is highly is very very operational as well, um, but it it it, it involves um, really just thinking about people and managing uh, absorption rates, um, you know, energy because uh, managing those people so that um, they are you're bringing them off the ice periodically because that's it's it's a lot like hockey you know because in hockey you're just sprinting all out for like two minutes, you know, or four minutes, and then you're back on. So it's just constant, these rotations. And you have to know when I need to pull somebody off because they are programmed to not do that. 
and they will burn themselves into the ground if you allow them to do so. So sometimes you have to just tap people on the shoulder and say, you're coming out. And they're probably going to say, no, 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 I'm in the middle of this. And that's exactly why you are working with them. That's exactly why you've thrown in your entire livelihood to work with them, because that's what they're going to say. But you have to look around and take care of one another um, to make sure it's like, yes, I understand but you need to take a break because we need you later. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, our next question oh, is from me. So I want to know why operation, why are operations experts so underrated in organizations? <laughs> uh, I think they do it to themselves. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks that are in this, uh, area, you know, that we, we think of things in terms of, you know, throughput rates, flow rates, you know, mm -hmm. inventories, um, uh, a lot of, <clears throat> you know, uh, efficiency and that those things make most people's eyes glaze over. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, th there's less focus, I think, at times on what are we trying to, to do, you know, what is the outcome or the why, and to really focus back on that, why are we doing this? Um, so I have to think that that's probably why that's happening. I am seeing a shift. I'm seeing something where, you know, supply chain management was just seen as this really, um, you know, box kicking, um, you know, dull, uh, you know, eye glazing area that's starting to get um, the eye of finance or finance is starting, which is really kind of the decision making arm of the firm for better or for worse. Um, but people realize, look, you plan operations for financial outcomes. If you're working in a for-profit, you plan operations for financial outcomes. If you're a nonprofit, then you're budgeting for operational outcomes. Mm -hmm. So can you run a school or, uh, you know, um, a nonprofit, any type of nonprofit like a business? Yes, but it is different. You're budgeting for operational outcomes as a nonprofit. In a for-profit, you're planning operations for financial outcomes. So if you're not thinking about the operations, then I, I, I don't I don't know what to tell you in terms of just <laughs> focusing on the oper on the financial outcomes. So I think that that's we're starting to see a bit of a change and some and some some waking up. But I think that um, in many instances, uh, folks in the operations area have done it to themselves. And I always tell people, look, you can you be thinking operationally. But when you go into a room to talk with senior leaders do not talk about, you know, efficiencies and throughputs and flow rates, talk about the outcomes and talk about in terms of whatever the, the unit of measure is. If it's in for-profit, dollars have to be a piece of that. And you need to be talking mm -hmm. in terms of dollars. If it's a nonprofit, you need to be talking about the mission outcomes of that nonprofit. Here are the results or the outcomes that, that we are producing. Um, because that's the, the, all the operational part that's, you know, you're doing that for something. So, yeah, that's wonderful. I, I mean, I'm thinking it's like telling a story. It's like going into the room and being willing to tell a story about what you do and make it meaningful for the people that are listening. I think that that you've hit on one of the, the, the greatest, um, skills and, and, and what has always been one of the most powerful, uh, human skills 
is storytelling. And as I tell my son, that's what separates us from squirrels. I mean, it's just, <laughs> just one of the things. Um, but human beings, we t we're storytellers. And that's what will motivate and inspire people to change and create. And so I think storytelling is so underrated. Different people have talked about this, um, about the power of, of storytelling. I mean, Scott Galloway now these days talks about it. Daniel Pink has talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and uh, I think that ability to tell a compelling uh, story is really a really, really important part of, of business. You're listening to the Crummer Hour on WPRK 91.5 Rollins College. Our guest is Crummer Professor Dr. Keenan Yoho, and we'll continue our conversation with him in just a moment. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Guy Fagan, an Early Advantage MBA student at the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. My time during undergrad at Rollins College was incredible. I took every opportunity to get involved on campus. I joined the Tau Cap Absalom fraternity, and I was also a member of the varsity men's tennis team. Crummer has an amazing reputation in the area, so it was a no-brainer. For more information on the Crummer Early Advantage MBA program, visit crummer.rollins.edu. Welcome back to the Crummer Hour. I'm your host, Clara Mount. Our guest is Crummer Professor Dr. Keenan Yoho, and with us we have our panel of Crummer students and alumni with more questions about Dr. Yoho's career. Um, our next question is about personal and professional development, and it comes from Kyle. Dr. Yoho, you already mentioned the book uh, When by Daniel Pink, but mm -hmm. do you have any other recommendations uh, for people to continue learning about operations? Uh, well, you know, um, to learn about operations, um, I, I, I probably want to just like, you know, um, widen the aperture a little bit. I mean, there, I think that there are some important books to be read, um, right now outside of that. I mean, I think, I think there, there's some things like I encourage people that if they haven't read Plato's Republic, that's a good one. Um, you know, to really get back to some of the fundamentals of uh, what is democracy and why is it important, um, I think would be a really good investment for a lot of Americans right now um, to, to see that uh, even through the kind of difference or, or divisiveness that we may be experiencing as a country, um, that this, uh, you know, democracy is, is a really, really important idea. It's a, it's a, it's a minority worldview, um, it turns out. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, things like, I, I think that that, that would be good. Um, some of those, I guess what you might, might call, uh, classics, uh, from a contemporary standpoint, I really like, uh, Scott Galloway's post Corona. Um, that's, that's a good one. Um, that's not only talking about his take um, on the economy uh, right now, but also what's the opportunity um, coming out of uh, the pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I was looking over a list that I'd recommended some years ago, and I, I still think that they're still pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm still a still big fan of George Orwell. Um, and not just Animal Farm in 1984. Actually, my favorite book by him is Homage to Catalonia uh, about his experience in the Spanish Civil War. So again, thinking about democracy, revisiting the Spanish Civil War, so that's, a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, 
Yeah, and I, you know, and I think that just from a creative standpoint, even understanding things like the Odyssey, you know, more than almost two decades ago, when I went to the Rand Corporation and people were talking about post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, and they were really framing it as a pathology, and and when you do that, um, immediately you're going to have a lot of momentum uh, on uh, pharmaceuticals. And so that became kind of the, the answer, um, once you do that, but I was encouraging people to think about it a bit differently and, and think back on Homer and the Odyssey and that the 10 years home from the Trojan war and that to really think about that. And, and what were those monsters that Odysseus and his colleagues were fighting for 10 years, uh, yeah. to get home and that we needed to really, to, to really think about that. And how do we create a way to bring people home? And it may take, there may be something in that decade number. There may be a real logic, intuition, or something based upon experience of how long it takes to get home from war. And it's probably not, you know, wholly um, through a pill. And so I think that that and it's, and it's going to be messier and more complicated, mm -hmm. but I still haven't seen anyone stand up the Odysseus project. Um, and uh, <laughs> I would really love to see that because I think that um, it might help people as we've come out of, you know, 20 years of, of war um, in Central and Southwest Asia and, and, and help others too who are suffering from traumatic um, uh, stress of like how, what is home and how do you get there? Yeah. I think that that ties into what you said earlier about knowing what, what, what needs to be fast and what needs to be slow. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I was just uh, listening to something, um, yesterday and they were, uh, there was a, this idea of, um, you know, how long will, <clears throat> will it take you to accomplish something? Um, and you know to or to be enlightened it'll take uh you know five years well what if i if i double my efforts and if i um you know work at it twice as long each day well then it'll take you 10 years yeah and so uh yes <laughs> wow <laughs> that's profound <laughs> So unfortunately, we have to bring the session to a close, um, but I want to end, I always love to end on this question. What would you like to say to the Crummer community? What's your final message? You know, um, I think that I said it in the very first podcast, and that is uh, every day is selection. Yes. And so um, every day um, it becomes some type of, uh, of a test and, and the test, it doesn't have to be a test that it's raining and you're in three feet of mud and, and you're cold and, and you're tired. There's sometimes <laughs> the tests are small. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's that you're in a hurry and you could hold the door for the person behind you, or you could decide that there's just enough space between you that it won't be uh, a, a completely offensive for you to let it uh, close on them. Um, and those little things, I think, add up, um, not just in the way that they impact others, but that type of compassion to others extends to ourselves. And if we if we aren't compassionate with ourselves, uh, it's hard to be that way with others and vice versa. And so every day is selection and the decisions that you make and how they're going to impact not only you um, as a person, as you as you as you grow and develop <clears throat> and, and move through your life course. Um, 
but but how they impact others and so you know there would just be i guess that that would be it is that uh every day is selection i love that thank you so much for that message um and i want to say dr yoho thank you again for joining us here on the crummer hour um I'd also like to thank our panel representing the Kremer Graduate School of Business, Gerard Mitchell and Kyle Sawyer. And just thanks for being here, everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. This was this was great. Thank you, Dr. Yoho, for all your wise words and uh, pieces of, of discussion. Uh, my pleasure. I had a great time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Today's Crummer Hour has been brought to you by the Crummer Graduate School of Business at Rollins College. Now is a great time to consider enhancing your career success by pursuing an advanced degree in business. And the Crummer School offers a variety of educational programs to help you become a global, responsible, innovative business leader. To learn more about the programs and begin the application process, go to crummer.rollins.edu. The Crummer Graduate School of Business. Experience excellence. The Crummer Hour is a production of Victor Media Group. It's the mission of Victor Media Group to make the world a better place by making ourselves better people. If you like the show, follow Victor Media Group on your favorite social media platform or visit our website at victormediagroup.co. Today's show was hosted by Clara Mount and executive produced by Gerard Mitchell and J.B. Adams with sound editing by Aaron Trinka. Our gratitude goes out to Greg Golden, Director of Student Media at Rollins College and the entire team at WPRK, as well as Mike Brown and Loveland Finley in Crummer Alumni Relations for their gracious help and support. This is Clara Mount, and until next time, Fiat Lux.